Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So today... We're starting our new series in Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Um, here's how we're going to do it. So we're going to cover Luke 1 and 2 for the month of December. And then when we get into January, we'll pick up in Luke 3, and then we'll go through the rest of the book, uh, probably to, I think it'll take us right around to the middle of June. Um, we'll finish Luke 24 right around the end of June. I think that's right. <clears throat> I'm in the process of putting together uh, my teaching schedule for next year. It's just about done, um, and it's a real doozy. So we'll get through Luke the first half of the year, and then we're going to go through First and Second Kings. Um, and I was joking with somebody the other day, uh, just the way that everything kind of fell uh, just a few days before Christmas of next year. Our Advent series won't really be an Advent series. We'll be going through the end of 2 Kings and we'll be studying the fall of Jerusalem three days before Christmas. So, Merry Christmas. <laughs> I asked my kids, I was like, does that seem dark? Uh, and my daughter said, I don't know, it seems like your style. So we're gonna go with it. Um, so, <laughs> so don't come next year expecting a happy Christmas message. It's, but the way that we're gonna structure this, um, Luke 1 and 2, we're gonna look at these two chapters for the month of December um, because this is our time of Advent. We're gonna spend time this month celebrating and looking at uh, the arrival of Jesus. Now, Advent, if you're unfamiliar, is a Latin word and it means arrival. And essentially what Luke 1 and 2 is, is the story of the arrival of Jesus, the first Advent, the first arrival of Jesus. And the reason why we're doing this and the reason why church historically has always celebrated the season of Advent is because um, Christmas is more than December 25th. If you're thinking that this entire time of year is all about one day, then you're missing a really fantastic season that God has placed before his people. A season for you to uh, consider, to reflect, but also to prepare. What I mean by that is during the first advent, when you read the story in Luke 1 and 2, there's a time of reflection and celebration because Jesus shows up on the scene in the middle of a very dark world. And it gives you this ability to kind of consider, well, what does it mean for the king to show up? What does it mean for reigning kings when the true, real king shows up? What does it mean for priests? What does it mean for young girls who are about to get married? What does it mean for families in Israel? Because when the king shows up, everything gets turned upside down. And so in celebrating and reflecting on this time in Luke 1 and 2, the first arrival, what it does inside of us is prepares us for the second arrival that's coming. There is another advent on the way. Jesus came the first time as a child in a manger, and he's coming the second time as a reigning king who's gonna split the sky. And that second advent where he splits the sky and comes to make war and end evil and redeem his people, 
That event is what we talked about in our last message series in First and Second Thessalonians. So in First and Second Thessalonians, Jesus is coming back and we left that series with these questions in our mind. Well, if he's coming back, am I ready? Am I prepared? What is he gonna find me doing when he shows up? Is there a plow in my hand and sweat on my brow or am I busy building my own kingdom and pouring all of my resources into the things that I want to do without any consideration for what my king wants? Well, that's the heart behind this series, this, this time in Luke one and two. We wanna prepare for his second advent by celebrating and reflecting his first, amen? That's it, simple as that. We wanna read through the text in Luke one and two. We wanna just kinda jump into the deep end and we wanna come out soaking wet with this preparation for his second coming, amen? Okay, so that's where we're going, let's get into it. Luke chapter one, we're gonna start in verse one. Luke 1.1 1, 1 says, inasmuch, um, I'm reading from the ESV, uh, by the way, not the only translation, you can read from whatever you like, just, just so you know what I'm reading from, um, and it'll be up here on the screen. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, so the introduction to this book doesn't really have anything to do with where we're going for the Advent message, but it's important for when we jump into Luke chapter three and we start getting into the story. It gives us the context for why we have this letter. This introduction sets the tone and the purpose of the book. Luke is a doctor, he's a physician. So he's got a level of precision and an interest to detail that he brings to the table. He was a traveling companion of Paul in the book of Acts, and these two books, Luke and Acts, they go together. They were written by the same guy, and they are a collection that go together. We also know that Luke probably was a Gentile. There are clues about that from Colossians 4, 10 through 14, and the thrust of the book of Luke seems to be that God's plan is now unfolding on the earth and it includes the Gentiles. So now that we know the author, the time period is important also. It was written probably around 60-ish AD. Now, depending on the commentary that you pick up, you'll hear different opinions on that, but it was certainly written before John's uh, gospel and it was most likely written after Matthew and Mark, which is the reason why when we start this book, he says that there has been many accounts, uh, beginning with eyewitnesses and ministers they've delivered to us. At 60 AD, the book of Matthew has already been written, the book of Mark has been written, they've been circulating around the churches, and people are familiar with the gospel story. And there are people that are still alive that remember they were there when Jesus fed the 5,000. There are some people around, they're like, yeah, I mean, I ate some of that food. 
I was there. I heard him say these specific things. His family is still alive. His brothers are still alive. Luke is able to go and interview these eyewitnesses. And so the reason why this is important is because the apostles are teaching regularly and there are these other written accounts, but Luke sees an importance to bring his first hand account and eyewitness testimony into a written record for a very specific purpose. And the purpose we're told is this guy named Theophilus. He compiles the story of Luke and Acts for this guy the question we have to ask is, well, why is that important for us? Not because this book is all about us, but the Spirit of God is speaking through this text to help us understand, how does this apply to us? Why do the first four, do we just skip through it because I'm not Theophilus? No, that's foolish because in a way, you are Theophilus. Because we're told that this guy needed to hear eyewitness testimony and a record of the events so that he may have, this is verse four, certainty concerning the things he had been taught. He had already been taught numerous things, but there was a level of certainty that he needed on the inside of us. And I would argue that in some way, we're all kind of a little bit of a Theophilus. There is some level of us being familiar, familiar with what we have been taught in the text, but we constantly need reminding and certainty concerning what we've been taught. Now, why do we need reminding and certainty concerning what we've been taught? Because we live in an age where fraud and deception are on the rise. Now, it's always been on the rise. It's been on the rise since the early church, but it keeps ramping up more and more. In every generation, there's more and there's more and there's more. And if you're not familiar with the teachings of Jesus and what God has declared in his word, you are a sucker for anyone that wants to take part of what he said and spin it to serve their own devices. And if you're not familiar with the teachings, then you are also prone to take half of what you know and make it fit what you need in a specific situation. We need constant reminders so that we can be certain of what we have been taught. I'm kind of sure of what I've been taught, but we want to be certain. We want to go back to it over and over and over again in the same way that Luke feels important that this guy goes over it once again. We feel it should be important that we go back to this text because this text is filled with eyewitness testimony. Now that's really important because if you get summoned for jury duty and you go sit in this box with these other jurors you are going to be asked to judge on a specific case that you don't have any details about. You're gonna be told uh, this happened or maybe this didn't happen. Well, how do you know how to judge? How can you decide what is true and what is not true? Well, testimony is gonna be entered, evidence is gonna be entered, and eyewitnesses are gonna come in, they're gonna say what they saw. And so what you're gonna do is you're gonna say, based off of what this person said they saw, I will either trust this or not trust this. And what we have in this book is a collection of people who were actually there, they actually heard Jesus say these specific words and they recorded it and you have to make a decision whether you believe it or you don't believe it. And not just whether you believe it, but whether you believe it exactly as it is communicated to us. And this is really important. And the reason why it's important is because 
This book contains the evidence of eyewitness testimonies of the words of Jesus, but also the testimony of miracles and transformed lives. When you read this book, you will see people who were one way, and when they met Jesus, they changed and they were a completely different way. And unless you read that eyewitness testimony, you find it hard to believe that that can happen in your life too. Oh, I've met lots of people who say things like, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've said. You don't know the lines that I've crossed. I've got good news for you. I don't need to know. Not important. I don't need to know the details. But God who knows all does know the details and he's calling your name. And the question is, are you gonna respond? Are you gonna respond to the invitation of stepping into a transformed life, a completely new life, or are you gonna to continue to believe your own lies that you're too bad for him to forgive you? Now, all of this prepares us for the days of head in this second advent, and with that in mind, I want us to be able to jump into verse five with the understanding of what Luke is really doing. All of this eyewitness testimony, all of this, it, the way he writes and the precision in which he writes, it paints a picture that invites you to step into the story. All right, so what's about to happen is we're about to see a scene of this priest named Zechariah, and he's gonna be in the holy place. Now we've talked about this numerous times. The temple of God, was based off of the tabernacle of Moses. There's three main compartments or rooms or areas to it. There's the outer uh, court, then within the building structure, there is the holy place. In the holy place, there's three pieces of furniture, table of showbread, candlestick, and the altar of incense. And then you go into the third room, that's the holy of holies and the Ark of the Covenants in there, okay? Now at this point in the story, this isn't Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple's been destroyed. A new temple has been built. This is what's considered by scholars the second temple period. And this guy, Zechariah, is about to step into this area or this room in the temple. And I just want you to imagine through what Luke is writing, what it would have been like to be in that room. The only light in this room is from this lit candlestick. It's dark, but there are, there's light kind of casting from this candlestick. There's, there's a table of showbread over here where the priests break this bread and it's there every day. And it's a reminder that God's body, his, his presence, his, he's feeding his people. There is enough for everybody to feast off of God. You know, there's no shortage. He's always providing for his people. The light, the candlestick is a reminder that God is, he's lighting the way, he's, he's illuminating the path for his people. And there is this other thing, this altar of incense, and this altar of incense has this smoke that's rising up and it is symbolic of the prayers that God's people are praying and they're rising up to God's throne room. So I want you to imagine, as we step into this, I want you to kind of get in your head all of the symbolism because all of this stuff exists for a reason. It speaks, it declares, it reminds, just like the book of Luke is reminding us about the goodness of God. Okay, so let's get into it. Luke chapter one, verse five. It says, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when the division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And then the angel spoke and said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. But he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Man, what a scene. Now let's kind of dissect this a little bit because there's a lot going on that we're unfamiliar with. Now Zechariah is a priest we're told that he is married to a woman named Elizabeth. They're both old, and they've wanted kids for a long time. They've been praying for kids for a long time, but they don't have any children. And not having children in this culture is very difficult because there's no retirement homes in the first century. If you don't have children, as you get older, there's no one to take care of you. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth are in a tough spot but also they're in a tough spot because Zechariah doesn't have anybody to pass down his lineage. His family line is gonna end here. So they've been praying for a long time that this gets resolved, that God would step in, but he's been praying for a long time and Zechariah, he's, he's starting to lose a little bit of faith. We'll find out in a moment based off of how he reacts. But the other thing that's really important here is Zechariah was one priest among what was probably around 18,000 priests serving at this time. All right, so we kind of get in our mind that like maybe Zechariah was like one of five. No, he was one of 18,000. And what was happening at this point was during the, the day, each day, there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And what was required of the priests, and this goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 30, verses six and, through, six and eight. The priest was supposed to go in to the holy place, that second room where the altar of incense is, and he's supposed to light the incense before the first sacrifice of the day. So there's a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Before the morning sacrifice, a lot, uh, the, the priest would go in and light uh, the incense and it would fill the tabernacle. The last sacrifice would happen in the evening and the priest would go back in again to the holy place and light that incense again. This is the only time that these priests are going into this room. They're also going in to handle the showbread, but your average priest isn't going into this room on a regular basis. In fact, the priests that did this job offering the incense, they were chosen by Lot. Now, not Lot, whose wife turned into salt. Lot, the, guy, Lot, the, the, the process of, of, of casting lots. 
All right, so you've got these uh, urim and these thumim, you've got these things that the priests wear, and they're divining to the Lord, they're asking him, all right, so God, so, so who's it gonna be today? Is it gonna be this guy, is it a yes or no? And they're casting these lots, and based off of how the lots fall, that's how you know who is supposed to go in and do the job. There were so many priests that some priests went their entire life and never got this job. And if you did get the job, you only did it once. You weren't allowed to go in and do it a second time. That's how many guys there were. And so as we step into the story here, Zechariah is chosen by lots, and it's his big, excuse me, it's his big day. It's, it's his time to go in and offer the incense, and his responsibility is to go in and take the, the um, it, it probably would have been like frankincense or myrrh, some kind of, um, like would have looked like a rock, he would have set it in there, he would have burned it, it would have created smoke, and the smoke would have filled, all right? So this is his responsibility. So he goes in, first time he's ever done this, he's an old, old guy, he goes in, he's like, man, he's probably really excited, right? Because it never, it, man, finally, my shot. Like, I'm 60, I'm like, man, this is it. So he goes in, and he's like, all right, I'm doing the thing. He goes in. He starts offering the incense and all of a sudden he looks to the right side of the altar incense and he sees an angel. He doesn't just see an angel, the angel starts speaking to him. Now immediately he gets freaked out because there's not supposed to be any else in this room. And immediately we're told that he is gripped with fear. But I want you to picture what's happening at this moment. Zechariah has been praying most of his married life with Elizabeth that they would have a child, and now he's standing at the physical structure, this box that was created in order to symbolize the prayers of the saints, and an angel shows up to tell Zechariah, hey, remember all those prayers you've been praying? The Lord has heard them, and he has answered them. That's big, that's big. To hear that Lord heard your prayers at the place where the prayers are rising up into the throne? The symbolism is huge, and Zechariah, he gets struck with fear. And the angel appears and says three things. First thing he says is your prayers have been heard, you're going to have a son. All right, that's good news. The second thing the angel says is that your son that's going to be born, he's going to be under what's called a Nazarite vow his whole life. This is from Numbers 6, 2 through 6. Can't touch wine, can't touch dead things, can't cut his hair. He's going to be set apart as holy unto the Lord. A Nazarite vow was a specific vow that an Israelite could take. It started by shaving their head, and then they didn't cut their hair again. They didn't drink any wine, they didn't touch anything dead. And it was a dedication, it was an outward sign to everybody around, all of their friends. Hey, this guy is set apart for the Lord's purposes. God's using him. He's not doing whatever he wants. God is using him for his specific purposes. So the angel tells Zechariah, your son is gonna be one of these guys. He's gonna fulfill this vow. That's the second thing. And then the third thing he says is that this son of his is gonna fulfill a 400-year-old prophecy. Your son, who's gonna be under Nazarite vow, is going to fulfill a prophecy that was spoken 400 years ago by this prophet named Malachi. Now Malachi, was the last prophet in our Old Testament. It's the last book, last prophet. He's the last one to speak. After he speaks, there's 400 years of silence. No prophets are speaking, God's not saying things. 
Now, this isn't to say God isn't doing things, but there's no recorded prophet books from the period of Malachi up until the birth of Jesus, okay? And this angel tells Zechariah, your son is gonna fulfill the very last words that Malachi said. Now, you guys know, you're familiar with the words, right? We don't need to read it. No, I'm kidding, like, let's, let's read it. So what were the last things that Malachi, what are the last words of the Old Testament before this 400 years of silence before Jesus is born? What's the last thing? Go to Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Now Malachi prophesied during this period, <clears throat> the very, uh, the, it was the second temple period, it was after the exile, after the second temple was finished, he said these last words, and this is what he says. He says, behold, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land a decree of utter destruction. Now, do you remember what the, uh, what the angel had just said? He's gonna turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children, the disobedient and the wisdom to the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is huge. Zechariah was just told, hey man, your prayers are answered. You're gonna get a son and your son is gonna fulfill a 400 year old prophecy and he's gonna prepare the way of the Lord. That's huge. Let's see how Zechariah responds. Go to verse 18. <clears throat> Zechariah says to the angel, well, how shall I know this? That's a, uh, in that, you're gonna find out what he's really saying is, I don't believe this. How shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, I am gape, look, I can just imagine, I don't want to interject in scripture, but look, I can just picture, he's like, look, bro, <laughs> okay? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering what his delay is in the temple because it only takes a few moments for the priest to go in and put on the, 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 the stuff on the altar and then the smoke fills and he comes back out. It's not a long process, couple minutes at the most. Where is Zechariah? And is he talking to somebody? What is going on in there? Verse 22, and when he comes out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that they had seen, excuse me, that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me, to take away my repro reproach among the people. So how did Zechariah respond to the angel? With disbelief. God finally breaks his 400 years of silence. He speaks through an angel to the priest and the priest doesn't even believe him. Now I wanna make an argument here. I wanna argue that Zechariah should have believed. 
Now, why am I making that argument? Because Zechariah was a priest. And his proximity to the holy things of God was closer than your average Israelite. He is around stuff that is just, it's got God's fingerprint all over it. He's involved in the sacrifices regularly. He's getting into the holy place. He's got his hands on the incense. He's burning the incense. He sees this angel that's speaking to him. His proximity to holy things, I would argue, he should have responded differently just by how close he was to this stuff. But not just that, he was a priest. He was familiar with God's word, which means he would have known that God has a One of the favorite, how do I say this? One of God's favorite things to do in the Bible is give old people children. (laughs) He loves it. So my man Zachariah, he's in there and, and, and he's told, hey, you know this thing that God does regularly? He's gonna do for you. I don't believe it. What do you mean you don't believe it? You've read Abraham. You heard what happened when Sarah laughed? How did you not? But not only did he know the story of Abraham, he knew the story of Malachi. He knows prophecy, he's a priest. This is his full-time job. He is familiar with the word of God. He knows Malachi's last words. He knows the the last thing God said is the next thing he's gonna do. So everybody knows it. What is supposed to happen next in the timeline before the Messiah shows up? Elijah's supposed to come back. Everybody knows this. And what is this Elijah figure going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And so when an angel shows up and says this to Zechariah, why is Zechariah's response, I don't believe you? It's because even though on paper, Zechariah should have said, let it, be according, let it be to me according to your word, we know that just because many things look true on paper doesn't mean they are. Let me explain what I mean. You going to church regularly, showing up every Sunday, since you were five years old, you've never missed, it doesn't mean that you are spiritually mature. Your biblical knowledge does not translate into salvation or transformation. Just because you've been around it and you know it and your mama talked it all the time and it's second nature to you and you can spot it in media and and in movies when things start popping, you're like, ah, I know where that reference came from. Your sheer amount of knowledge does not transform or or translate into a surrendered, repentant, transformed life. Just because you know a lot doesn't mean you are submitted to much. Your close proximity, like Zechariah, to godly things does not translate into you being godly. That's the reason why Zechariah responded the way he did. Because if you go through the motions long enough, when God does finally show up, you don't know how to react because all you've been doing is going through the motions. Your heart isn't in it. You're not really doing it because your heart belongs to him. 
Your heart still belongs to you, but all of your actions are going through the motions. And everybody on the outside would have said, no, you tell Zechariah that news, he's surrendered, he's blown away. He's gonna fall on his face in worship. Nobody would have said the priest would have not believed. So when confronted with an angel and an answered prayer, Zechariah doesn't believe. And for his disbelief or his unbelief, he is silenced until the prophecy comes true. Now, I wanna take a look at a parallel account of how things turned out very differently, okay? Let's continue with the story in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now in Hebrew, that's Miriam. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I can imagine a young Hebrew girl who's familiar with scripture, she grew up hearing it regularly. Greetings, O favored one. Man, the last time an angel spoke like that, it was to Gideon. What is going on here? No one's talked to me like this. Verse 30, the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now this is, Luke is gonna do this through the whole book. He is going to constantly, from eyewitness testimony, share with us the specific scripture that is being fulfilled in the Christ event and where it pulls from in the Old Testament. Hey, this thing about John the Baptist, it's not like Jesus, God just woke up one day and was like, you know, I should probably send somebody ahead of Jesus just to kind of prepare everybody. No, that was prepared 400 years in advance. This guy named John, who's gonna become John the Baptist, he's gonna be moving in the spirit of Elijah. And this idea that the Messiah will sit on the throne of David, we covered this all through the first and second Samuel series. This isn't new. This isn't God's like, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna do something crazy. I'm just gonna throw him a curveball. No, this was said a thousand years ago. And now this angel is telling this little girl, hey, the prophecy that was spoken of a thousand years ago is gonna come about through the child that you're gonna give birth to. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child will be born, will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, 
Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the same angel visits a young girl named Mary and the conversation goes very differently. The angel shows up and says, hey, I've got some news for you. I know you're not married yet. You are engaged to this young man and in this culture, the way it worked is you would get engaged with somebody for a period of about a year and legally you would be determined as married, married even though the ceremony hadn't happened, but you were engaged, so you were considered married. And so she's not formally having gone through the process, she's not married, but she's legally considered married because she's engaged. And the angel comes to her and says, I know you, you haven't had, you're not married, you don't have relationships with a, a, a man yet, you're still a virgin. Um, God is going to overshadow you and the Holy Spirit is going to place inside of you Jesus and you're gonna give birth to him and he's going to be the king of the nations. And her response is, I'm your servant. I will do whatever it is that God wants from me. Now what I wanna show you here is why Luke puts these two stories in parallel together. He wants you to see the response of a priest and the response of a no-name little girl. Now in order to drive this home, I wanna show you this chart. Now this chart I'm about to show you is pulled from a commentary by a guy named Craig Keener. He wrote a, a commentary on the book of Acts. Um, it's called Acts and Exegetical Commentary. It's pulled from there. It's also pulled again in another commentary that I reckon to, uh, recommend to a lot of you guys. Uh, it's the InterVarsity Press uh, Biblical Background uh, com Commentary on the, intro uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, I've posted on Slack a couple times. Uh, in the New Testament version, uh, Craig puts this one in here too. I just said Craig like I know him. I don't know him, um, but I, I wanna show you. Now, what you're about to see, for most of you, over 50, you might not be able to read it. And I didn't know this until I put it together, so if I'm about to throw it on the screen, I don't wanna freak you out, but it may be very hard for some of you to read. So when you see it and you're like, oh, I can't read that. I know, I'm sorry. I would have made it bigger had I known, but I don't have an 85 inch whatever at my house to see if it was really gonna work. So what I'll do is I'll make sure I'll post it online at the end of the service uh, with the message so you'll be able to see it. But um, if you'll go ahead and throw that up there. See, I told you, like, I can, what is that? Is that Greek? I don't know. So what you're looking at, Craig put together this chart, and what it is is it's a parallel of both of the accounts we just read. And what I want you to see is how similar these are, okay? Over here on the left is Zechariah. Over here on the right is the account of Mary. Now, it, this, this chart covers text we haven't read. We'll get to them in the coming weeks. But to serve our purposes, it's important for us to know what happened and what is about to happen. Here's what I want you to see. In 1.12, the vision's recipient is troubled, and in 129 with Mary, the vision's recipient in trouble, okay? In both accounts, they're told, don't be afraid. In both accounts, the reason for the miracle is explained. For Zechariah, the son is John, and for Mary, the son is Jesus. In both accounts, the child will be great. In both accounts, they're told they're gonna to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb and conceived to the Holy Spirit. In both accounts, they're explained the mission. In both accounts, there's a question. In both accounts, there's a proof of explanation. But in Zechariah's account, he's muted for unbelief, and in Mary's account, she's praised for faith. And at the end, both of them, the child grows up. 
Now, why is that fascinating? Because Luke wrote the story in such a way to help you connect the dots and understand that these two are supposed to be read next to each other. Because you need to take away the response of these people. The priest should have, in our minds, had Mary's response, and Mary should have had the priest's response, but they're backwards. Why? Why is that so? Why is it important to us? Why do we need to know that? And why are they backwards? Because at the first advent, when you have people who should have known and believed and didn't, and you have people who others would have overlooked and are powerless, and they believed... It, ha- it begs the question, what will the response of the people of the world be at the second advent? And the answer is troubling. If we're studying the first advent to prepare for the second advent, and what the evidence we have from the first advent is that the people who should have known, they were caught off guard, they were caught asleep. They went down in silence, and the people who we would have not even given a second thought, that we would not have thought were, would have responded the way that, that, Mary would have, that Mary did, they're gonna be the ones who are praising, submitting, bowing down. This story is, it's haunting, it's a warning. Because what the story is telling us is that the second advent of Jesus is gonna look a lot like the first, and that means it's not gonna look anything like you think it's gonna look like. Zechariah read the text, he knew the text, but he also in his mind had a picture of how things were gonna play out, and the moment it didn't, he freaked out. And he went down into silence. But the young girl who spent most of her time just saying, well, I, I, I trust whatever God says, I, I, I belong to him. If he wants to put the Son of God in my belly and, and I'm gonna grow him for nine months and then give birth to him, yeah, okay, I'll do that. This account reminds us that there's gonna be at the second advent, lots of celebrity pastors and leaders who we were convinced, you follow them right now online, you're like, man, give me something good, give me another tweet, what's the next, when are you posting again? This story reminds you that many of them, they're only doing it because they like that you like them. And when he shows up, they're going to be asleep they're gonna go down into silence. And most of the ones that you, the the people that are Christians that you go to church with right now, sit on the same row and you don't even know their name, they're gonna be the ones who are completely surrendered. They're not gonna be caught off guard, they're the ones who are awake. This text tells us that there are gonna be tons of big churches empty and tons of little no-name backwoods country churches that are on fire, filled with the Holy Spirit and praising the Lord at his second advent. That's what this story reminds us. That it's not gonna happen the way you think it is. And the, and the ones, the, the, the people that you think are going to be ready, there's a good chance they're not gonna be ready. And the ones that you overlook, the people you don't have time for, they're the ones who are gonna lift their eyes and like ancient gates and they're gonna be praising, let the king of glory come in. The second advent, much like the first advent, is gonna be completely different than what you think and it's gonna flip the entire world on its head. So knowing that is one thing, but doing something about it is something else. Now, this isn't in the text, but this is my argument. 
Luke is arguing that Advent, the first and the second, is marked by unexpectedness. Now, Jesus talks about this regularly. He says when he returns, it's gonna be like in the days of Noah. People are gonna be like giving into marriage and they're gonna be doing their normal stuff. No one's gonna be thinking about the return of Jesus and all of a sudden it's gonna come on them like a flood. What I don't want is for that to come on you like a flood. It should not come on God's people like a flood. Paul warns about this. Hebrews warns about this. Peter warns about this. There is coming a day when the whole world is gonna be judged and rocked. And if you have been spending most of your life in the daily routine of practicing unbelief and worry and fear and anxiety and clinging to your phones and asking celebrities to tell you what to think about things and putting your hope in governments and in school systems and in, and in, in new laws that are being passed, or, or the, the different cars you can drive, or telling these people they can't have this thing, and these people they can have this thing, putting all of your hope regularly into the things of this world, rather than putting your faith in God, when he splits the sky, you will, like Zechariah, go down into silence. Because here's the argument I'm making. Whatever you practice on a daily basis will be revealed at his second coming. When he shows up, it will be too late for you to say, I trust you. No, your entire life testifies against you. You don't trust him. You trust your job. You trust the cycles of the earth. You trust the election that's coming up. You trust that when you send your kids to school that they're going to get a good education and they're not going to be indoctrinated with nonsense. You put in your, in your home, in your heart, all of your faith. It does not rest on the king of the universe who's sitting at the right hand of God. It rests in the kingdoms of this world. You say you're a Christian, you go to church every week, but your faith isn't in God. And when things start falling apart, you don't trust that he will work it out. You find a way to work it out yourself. He's not the first thing you go to. He's maybe the fourth or the fifth. And so this story grips us because it wakes us up, it shakes us, it reminds us, hey, the, the whole Advent thing, it's not just something that happened once and then we're all just sitting around waiting for the second thing to happen again. The second thing that's coming, the second Advent, will reveal on the day he shows up what your life has been about your entire life. And those who are going through the religious routines, who think that all there is to life is having your best life and seizing the moment and going to church on Sunday, but not really paying attention, just watching the clock, waiting, oh God, can we please go to lunch? Where do you wanna go to lunch? Surfing Facebook while I'm preaching, texting, what is the next thing that I have to do? Your heart isn't submitted to God's word. You don't read it unless I'm reading it to you. When he shows up, guys, it's too late. Whatever happens on that day is a reflection of what you're doing right now. You either go down into unbelief and silence or you practice faith now, which is gonna result in praise at his return. So this is what I wanna do to close. I wanna take these two pictures, hold them up before you in the same way Luke is trying to for his friend Theophilus and say, behold. Now this isn't new to Luke, this is all through scripture. 
Everywhere you look, there's two ways. Choose life or choose death, that's it. Well, is there a middle kind of? No, there's not. You choose life or you choose death. You choose a life of faith or you choose a life of unbelief. And your unbelief, it, it can masquerade as belief. You can walk around looking like you are close to the things of God, that you know a lot, but it's not true surrender. It's not true belief. And so I just want to hold up both of these pictures for you to behold. And I want you to ask yourself, if we are on the eve of another advent, which we are, he is coming again, how will he find you when he returns? Will he find you looking like a good little priest, fulfilling your duties, but when God speaks, you don't believe it. When you hear the word of God preached, you say, well, that's, that's nice. That's, I know someone needs to hear that. When you post the podcast, let me know, because there's somebody I need to send this to. No, this isn't for someone else, this is for you. This is a time of reflection in this season of Advent to prepare your heart for what is coming. Because if he shows up, and if you haven't been prepared, you're like those virgins who didn't have enough oil. And when you're outside knocking, please let us in. He's gonna look at you and say, depart from me. You worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Lord, Lord, didn't we go to church every single week? Yeah. Yeah, you did, but I, I never knew you. I don't know your name. I don't know who you are. You didn't follow me. You don't belong to me. You're not in my family. You never surrendered to me. The only person you ever surrendered to is yourself. The only thing, the only person you ever followed was yourself. Mm. So this is what the Spirit of God is saying today, holding up two pictures. And the question is, where do you fall? Which one looks like you? Because there is a coming advent and it is going to be glorious for some and it is going to be miserable for others and my greatest fear is that it will be miserable for some of the people in this church I want nothing more than for you to finally after 50 years surrender to the lordship of Jesus to let him put a fire in your belly, to actually get up early every morning and read this word and see what it says and become familiar with the story and start becoming enamored with all of the majestic ways that he's working in your life. So you stop saying, well, that was a coincidence and you start lifting your hands and praise, saying, praise God for the way he worked this out. I couldn't have done that on my best day. I want you to get low and stop lifting yourself so high and being so puffed up and proud. I want you to get crushed. I want you to carry your cross. And I want all of us to fix our eyes on Jesus and be ready for that sky to split. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall. And I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us and God bless.